In this week's member episode, we're going to talk a little bit more on the liturgy and reverence, as I did in the episode this week, entitled, Why Reverence is Divisive. In that episode, just to summarize, we made the case that liturgy liturgy bears along with it certain theological ideas. It affects our morals, even if we don't realize it. And likewise, certain theological ideas and certain views of morality affect what we think about liturgy and what kind of liturgy we gravitate towards. We also mentioned that our reverence, our external reverence, and our internal reverence affect each other. That is that if we have true interior reverence, then it expresses itself externally in certain kinds of gestures and the way we carry ourselves in Mass. And that if we want to have true interior reverence, then one way to do it is to engage in exterior acts of reverence because that relationship between body and soul is very real and they affect each other. So with that in mind, we'll look at some of the principal acts of reverence and principal characteristics of traditional liturgy and explain why they are important and why they ought not to be lost, why they ought not to be rejected or scorned as they often are. Because in the wisdom of the church's life, her very long life, these things have been ever-present in her liturgy, and that's not for no reason. There are certain ways that we act in the liturgy that have been proven in the lives of the countless saints to be proper ways to express our understanding of the mystery of the sacraments, our own creaturely humility, God's awesomeness and greatness, and that these always ought to be preserved, not only so that we can just have a connection to the saints in the past, because I think still there's there's not any canonized saint, or maybe there are only a couple, that haven't lived their life fed by the traditional liturgy, which has all of these traditional acts of reverence and traditional characteristics. So let's take one to start with, and, and this one relates to how the priest is oriented during Mass. Is he facing the congregation of people, or is he facing the East, or what we call at least liturgical East? If the church building itself isn't oriented to the East, then the priest facing the crucifix in the apse, or that area behind the sanctuary, the priest is symbolically facing the East, which is supposed to be an external expression of our interior expectation of Christ coming again in glory, and he will come from the East. You know, we think of the rising sun, S-U-N, but also of the rising sun. The prophet Ezekiel, for example, says, Then he led me to the gate facing east, and there was the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. Christ in the Gospel of Matthew says, For just as lightning comes from the east and is seen as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And also Christ talking about himself as the light of the world evokes imagery of the sun. And also there's symbolism of facing the east in our return to paradise, return to the Garden of Eden. So you can see there's good reason why a priest and the congregation would all face the same way as they are praying in anticipation of Christ coming again. As I've said in other episodes, the very character of the church is one to be a missionary, to spread the gospel of Christ to all nations, but that in view of Christ coming again in glory. We are in that period of history where we are anticipating Christ's second coming just as the Israelites anticipated the first coming of the Messiah. And of course, as I mentioned in the episode on Advent, that's very much what we are keeping in mind during this liturgical season of Advent. So for the priest who faced ad orientum to the east makes a lot of liturgical sense, and it's very instructive theologically. 
it helps us remember that we are not here closed off on ourselves and content with our citizenship on earth, but we await the coming of the Savior, that we are just living as temporary citizens of earth and joyfully and hopefully anticipating the second coming in glory of our Savior. But what is the theological significance of the priest facing the congregation? wouldn't say there's any theological significance in the same sense. There might be sociological significance in the sense that it, quote-unquote, engages people more, that the priest can engage with the congregation. Not that that's even something that the priest is really supposed to do, but that's the understanding that keeps people engaged to be able to see the priest. Unfortunately, that puts the priest in an unnecessarily central and exalted position as a person. It puts the priest's personality at the forefront, whereas the priest is supposed to be in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. So for the priest to be able to engage the congregation more is not necessarily a good thing because it makes the priest himself have undue importance. The priest as a man have undue importance. And the symbolism is lost. In fact, it's contradicted. Instead of the priest and the people all facing the same way, waiting for the coming of Christ, they are closed off looking at each other what the significance is of the congregation looking at the priest rather than congregation and priest looking at the crucifix, looking towards Christ together, why that would be preferable, I don't really understand. So for the priest facing the people, there's not theological significance, or if there is theological significance, it's, it's bad, and it contradicts the true theological significance that we're supposed to absorb during the liturgy. And it's motivated mostly by sociological concerns, concerns of keeping people, quote-unquote, engaged, which, as we know, still doesn't really happen when the priest is up there looking at the people and the people looking at the priest. So you can see how this might be instructive to someone who's not catechized. On the one hand, seeing in the way Mass is celebrated that we are all anticipating the coming of Christ, contrasted with priest and people facing each other in a kind of closed-off circle. Pope Benedict talks a lot about this in The Spirit of the Liturgy, which I highly recommend that you read. It was written when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Another element of liturgy which has been lost in the last half century, or a little bit more than a half century, is silence. Liturgy today tends to be filled with much talking, of priests talking directly to the people, of priests kind of ad-libbing or giving multiple homilies throughout the Mass, explaining things throughout the Mass. Very few moments of actual silence and contemplation and meditation. Every space is filled with speaking or singing, and much of the speaking is the priest speaking loudly in a microphone to the people rather than speaking silently to God on behalf of the people. And silence allows us a space to absorb and to meditate on the sacred mysteries, whereas constant noise doesn't allow us to do that. It's very hard to be engaged in deep prayer and meditation on receiving the Eucharist when noise or music or talking is, is always going on around you. Part of the problem is we tend to think that liturgy is supposed, supposed to be instructive or ex explanatory all the time, that we're supposed to know and to understand and to hear and to see every single thing that happens. The problem with that is the element of mystery and the element of the sacred is lost. As human beings, we see something as important when we can't directly approach it, that we can't get our hands all over it, that we can't see it from all angles. Something veiled from us, something of which we are unworthy in a sense, we know that that thing is worthy of reverence, that there's something special there. But when we strip everything of the veils of mystery, 
then we tend to think it's not that important. It's like, yeah, I heard what he says. I heard what the priest says at mass. I hear the words of consecration. I get it. Everything's explained. Yeah, I get it. I can see right up there the priest and the chalice and the host. Big deal. That's a problem. And that's instructive in a very bad way. If we take away all the veils of mystery, of which silence is one, then we are teaching, even if we don't consciously recognize it, we are teaching ourselves and everyone else that what's going on here is not that big of a deal and that you can understand it fully if only you hear all the words and see all the things going on on the altar. So with everything explained to you and visible to your eyes and audible to your ears, you are given the false impression that what's going on can be understood and that's and that it's not a mystery that transcends our understanding and comprehension. And that can have devastating effects on what we believe about Mass, and we can see how it's had devastating effects on what Catholics think about Mass and its importance. This again comes from a low Christology. I mentioned that in the other episode on reverence, that thinking that the reference point for what we do in Mass is Christ as man, and that he is man just like us in our fallen state, which of course is false. We ought to have a high Christology that we go to Mass to be pulled up out of ourselves and transcend this earth because we are united to Christ in his divinity. Not that we pull him down and take away every element of mystery so that he's just like us, that we're all just a bunch of, all just a bunch of human beings sitting around and singing hymns. Another important element of a reverent liturgy, traditionally speaking, is Gregorian chant. That is still called for by the Second Vatican Council, even though overwhelming majority of Catholic parishes throughout the world have abandoned it altogether and just use hymns, which don't even compare in their beauty to most simple Gregorian chants. But a number of reasons Gregorian chant ought to be preserved, at least in some way, in every Mass, is it connects us, of course, to the entire liturgical tradition of the Church, that pretty much every single saint knew Gregorian chant and experienced it and used it as a means to increase in devotion during their prayer at Mass. Also because of its simplicity and its universality, Gregorian chant is known throughout the entire world because it characterized liturgy throughout the entire world up until very recently. So it's something that's universal. It speaks to human beings in its simplicity and in its beauty, and that is universal. It's not confined to simply one place. It's not culturally specific. And so for the universality of the church, Gregorian chant is very important. The same holds for Latin during Mass, which again is the language of the liturgy still, because of its universality, that you can go to Mass, that you could, until very recently, go to Mass anywhere in the world and understand what's going on. People tend to forget that point and, and instead focus on the fact that I don't know Latin, therefore I won't know what's going on. But the benefit of Latin is that you could go to any country and understand Mass, and that is symbolic of how the church is one throughout the world. You go to Spain, you go to Poland, you go to Germany now, you don't know anything that's going on at Mass unless you know that language. But if Mass were still in Latin, of course, you would hear Mass just as you heard it in your own town. And you might say, well, I don't know Latin. Okay, but Mass in its principal text is the same every single time. And so the bulk of Mass, everyone would know within a week. They would know what's going on, where you are etc. Plus the added benefit of connecting you to the entire tradition, the liturgical tradition of the church, you being able to experience the mass as the saints experienced it, and being able to experience mass the same way in every place throughout the world. Another criticism is that it's a dead language, but that's precisely the point. It is a, a language set apart. It doesn't develop, it doesn't degrade into 
colloquial usage. It's a sacred language in the sense that it is not how we speak in our everyday conversations. And that's precisely the point. At Mass, we are not speaking in a colloquial way. We're not speaking to each other. We are speaking to God. And pretty much every religion has had some idea of a sacred language, a language that you pray in during worship of God that you don't use in any other context. And Latin is exactly that. The fact that it's dead is one of its greatest benefits as a sacred language. It doesn't change. Another important act of reverence is receiving communion on the tongue, and I mentioned this in the episode just a few days ago, that we are very hesitant to handle with our own hands something that we consider very, very important or valuable. So that alone shows that communion in the hand can chip away at our reverence and make us subconsciously think that the host really isn't the body and blood of Christ. It really isn't the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the God-man. Receiving on the tongue and receiving on your knees expresses a recognition of our humility and our nothingness before God and that we must receive from him. We can never take him. Finally, something that has really fallen away in recent decades is the way we dress. Dressing formally for Mass, wearing your quote-unquote Sunday best, that's kind of lost its meaning. It doesn't require much reflection to realize that how we dress indicates our respect for the one that we are going to be meeting or encountering. If you were to hear that you're going to meet the Queen of England or the King of England now, you wouldn't show up just in what you were wearing. Even if you were very close by and you could just pop in and meet the King, you wouldn't do so if you were wearing casual clothes. You would make great efforts to rush home and put something very nice on so that you meet the dignity of the occasion in the way you dress. Well, it's true that the way we dress doesn't affect God, but it does affect us. If we regularly pay no attention to what we wear in the presence of God, it's not doing anything to God, but it is doing something to our sense of who God is and who we are and what worship is. So it's something that is an external sign that disposes our mind, heart, and soul for the occasion, the occasion of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So we ought not to skimp on what we wear at Mass. To conclude, I I suppose the takeaway in all of this is to always be conscious of how much the external and the internal affect each other. Our external reverence, our external gestures, our external environment, how much that can influence our interior recollection or lack thereof. We shouldn't take lightly what the Church has recommended for so long. It's the product of the cumulative wisdom of all of the saints and the doctors of the church and theologians, that there are certain things that dispose us to worship God properly, and we ought not to abandon those lightly.